You're listening to the Art of Living Well podcast with Father Ian Van Heusen. A great speaker. Uh, I've, we've we've interacted at conferences a little bit over the years, and uh, I've always enjoyed what Jason has to say. I posted some of your videos. You may not know this, but you're actually on TikTok. I started a TikTok account that I, I threw some of your videos on that people enjoyed. So before we start, um, and before we jump into some of the topics, let's start off with a prayer. And then Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you pour your Holy Spirit into Jason, into our audience, that his words may touch lives, that they may help to facilitate transformation and bring people closer to you. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, Jason, start us off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your story? How did you How did you get to talking about chastity, talking about sex, I guess? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it really started back in college. I was leading high school retreats as a college student, and all the really opened up to us about all the struggles they were going through. And I realized, like, wow, they've got no formation, no guidance when it comes to the subject. And at the same time, I was doing sidewalk counseling for three years at an abortion clinic about a half hour away from our campus. And I just started to feel late meeting these women. Okay, like this woman's having an abortion in 45 minutes and I'm meeting her for the first time. Like, why couldn't I have met her when she was 16? Because maybe if she'd learned about chastity then, she wouldn't have dated this creep to begin with and be in this difficult situation. So I realized to save the most unborn babies, I've got to go upstream. Like I'm kind of throwing sandbags on the banks of a flooded river when there's a dam that's busted a quarter mile upstream. And like, okay, we got to head up there if we really want to plug the dam and get to the root of the problem, which was unchastity. Now, as I was experiencing these things, I was also discovering St. John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility for the first time. And I, it, to me, it was like, well, like this is the antidote right here. Like if they just had this understanding of human love and chastity, they'd be free from so much hurt. And, and so I just started sharing it with young people and a light bulb went on and, you know, just so started speaking more on chastity and it began to snowball. And before long, it was, a, you know, 100,000 students a year. And so I've been doing it now for 22, 23 years now. Awesome. Great. Um, and, and I think that makes sense that before people get to the point, because some people might be wondering right now, why are you guys with all of the craziness going on with everything going on in the world? Why the heck are you talking about chastity? Now, to be fair, we'd scheduled this before the events of the past week, but actually I think there is a lot now, not in the sense of that we're this is going to immediately solve our current circumstances, but before we get to the point where, I mean, I don't know, I don't care about your politics, yours or the audiences necessarily, but everybody can agree that whichever side you take, the reality is we know that people are lying. We know that people are lacking virtue, um, however you want to spin it. I mean, I think that's one thing everybody can agree on. They may disagree on who's lying or why they're lying, but we see a profound lack of virtue in the culture. So how is chastity connected? So like I was telling you before, we were talking off air, I said, you know, some people might think, well, you know, Jason or Father Ian, you know, I can, I can masturbate. I can look at pornography. Um, I can do kinky stuff with my wife or my spouse or my, my, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, and I can drink a little bit and party a little bit. This is like our college mentality. But when I look up the newspaper, I mean, or I watch news, I mean, I still have my reason. I mean, that those things don't affect my ability to think, right? It's that's like what I do with my body, not what I do with my mind. 
but that's not how the Catholics view it, right? Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, I mean, to put it simple, as an elderly priest friend of mine, probably 85 years old, would say, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> I mean, plain and simple, it, it does. It darkens the intellect as it weakens the will. Um, and so to, to try to compartmentalize our humanity in that way isn't even human. I think this is partly why Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, they're going to see God. You know, not only see God in the next life, but to see him in this life, in, in others, to see him in ourselves even. But we come blind to this stuff. And I've seen it time and time again. You go to like some theology class in high school. And, you know, when a kid's intellect and heart is so darkened by sexual addiction and sin, it's like, dude, catechism, trinity, like what? Like, I couldn't care less. I'm not interested. I don't get it. And so it really dulls our spiritual senses, but also our natural ones, in a sense, that we're weighed down by being dominated by our cravings, where our sensible appetites are telling us how we ought to live. And so if I can't, you know, control myself when it comes to my girlfriend, how am I going to control myself when it comes to the next beer? How am I going to control myself when it comes to that white little lie? Like either I have self-mastery or I don't. And so to think that I could be completely lazy when it comes to my character in one department and then just chivalrous and virtuous the next, it, it's, just a, it's just a costume, if anything. And so, and it doesn't mean that you got to get perfect in one area to grow in it. I mean, we're going to have our strengths and our weaknesses, but we can't compartmentalize human virtue. It goes across the board. If I'm honest, in, in real life, I think I'm going to be honest when it comes to my sexuality and my spirituality. So those th two things are not at odds with one another, but go hand in hand. Yeah, that's some great insights, some really great insights. And so I think people might be right now wondering, there's a lot of people I'm sure right now who are struggling with sexual sins. I mean, I know as a priest, I, I work a lot with people and I have a lot of my own thoughts on this, but I want to hear your thoughts first. Somebody might be saying, you know, but Jason, you know, I've been, I've been masturbating for years. I've been struggling with pornography or I've been struggling with accepting the church's teaching on some of these things. Like, what is the first step? Like, what does that progression look like? Let's just start. What is, what's the first step you've seen that most people need to take or how does that look in the beginning and how does that develop? No, I think right there is the first step. Okay. I, I got a, I got a problem here. You know, it's, it's out of my hands. I'm struggling with this. I can't, I feel like I'm, I'm not winning. I, I try this, I try that, I fall flat on my face. And I think sometimes God lets us stumble so that we can realize that if we're depending upon ourselves in the self-reliant attitude, we're going to get nowhere. You know, we need to come to him in our brokenness to be loved by him right where we're at in this mess and realize, okay, I need more than me. I need some accountability. I need some brotherhood. I need the sacraments. I need prayer. I need fellowship. Because a lot of times, I think, especially when it comes to our sexual sins, you know, we treat it like, wait, hey, lust is the problem. That's the problem. I got to just kind of get rid of that and white knuckle it. And then I'll be the good boy that God wants me to be. And, and so I got to just do more rosaries. And so we spiritualize the problem. Or, you know, some people take just simply a human approach to it. But we've got to take one that's fully human, meaning let's get to the root of this stuff. Like, when are you messing up? Is it when you're bored, you're lonely, you're angry, you're stressed, you're tired? There is an evangelical author named Jay Stringer who wrote a book called Unwanted, and he makes a really profound point in it. And the thesis of this is that our sexual addictions and brokenness are not the problem. Our sexual addictions, brokenness, all fantasies are often a roadmap to the healing that we need because what it is that you're craving is, is, is bringing to the surface probably a very legitimate unmet need that's seeking satisfaction in a way that's a bit twisted or warped. But if you can actually listen to that, not for the sake of just obeying it, but it's like, okay, why? 
why do I crave to see women in that way? Why do I crave to be seen by women? Why is it that I crave domination? Why is I, as I crave control? Like, and you really get to the issues behind a lot of these fantasies. There are unmet issues, wounds or whatever. And until those deeper things are really healed and addressed, then it's gonna to continue to manifest itself. It's almost like seeing weeds in your garden and you just go out with scissors. Oh, cut the leaves off, now we're done. It's like, no, 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 the root system has been undisturbed. You need to get under the soil of like, what's going on there? And if we can really have the courage to take that deep dive, then we're gonna see why it is when we hit these moments of desolation, of boredom, loneliness, anger, stress, or whatever, that we're running back to this old addiction to medicate ourselves and lift ourselves out of it. And it's, But as long as we're just seeing lust is the problem, I've just got to quit desiring people sexually, then I'll be a good boy. I mean, you're just going to implode. You're going to give up. You're just going to try to stuff and repress all that junk, and it's just going to explode, and you're going to give up assuming chastity to be an unrealistic and unhealthy and unnatural burden. When in reality, it's chastity that helps you to order yourself and integrate those sexual desires in a way that will actually free you to love. Yeah, I think I think your one point, although a lot, there's so many points I want you to kind of go back to and flesh out. But I want to start off with an insight I have as a priest and confession is, and this is mostly for men, sometimes for women, this mostly for men, for women, it's slightly different is you get the confession where it's like, father, you know, bless me. It's been two weeks since my last confession. Like, okay. You know, what are your, you know, they, and they say, well, father, um, I masturbated. I looked at porn and I got angry. Like, oh, okay. Um, so what's going on? Is everything, oh, everything's going great. I just masturbate, look at porn and get angry. It's like, well, no, everything is not going great. <laughs> you know, and maybe throwing a little bit of alcohol in that mix. It's like, but for men, a lot of times, if for women, it's slightly different. It's about growing in self-knowledge. Like you mentioned, that's another way of putting it. Those roots is, you know, there's a reason why you're masturbating. There's a reason why you're looking at porn and it's deeper than just, and I don't know if you've ever, like when you present on this, what are some of kind of those, those patterns? I mean, I can think of, you know, if you're, if you're a man, are you afraid of being alone? Are you afraid of being alone for the rest of your life? Um, if you're single and you're struggling to date, are you are you struggling to make healthy relationships? I think we're seeing that a lot with young men sometimes. Because I know one of the challenges. I mean, I tell the story of 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 before I entered seminary, and I say, you know, this is what the attitude you need when you're dating. Is I went to a couple of, of weddings. I went to two, and in each wedding there was three women and three single women in a cluster. And I was like, you know, I'm going to seminary in a month. I'm like, this is my last chance to dance. So I walked up to the three women. I said, I'm going to dance with one of you. Who's it going to be? You know? And I mean, of course, you know, they, they, they're looking awkward. It's awkward, but I always dance with one of them and I did dance with, you know, but it was like, but, but that confidence, those relationship skills, that, that, that takes courage. It takes strength. Uh, so, I mean, I threw a lot at you. Take it whatever direction you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of thoughts. One real quick. Um, I got to plug in my Mac here because it just showed me the battery is dying and I don't want to get cut off. So <laughs> one of the little glitches of doing live webcasting. So let me just plug this in while we're talking. But yeah, I think a lot of guys, um, you know, have a, they, they do have that fear of rejection, so to speak. So I don't want to get rejected. And so that one of the, the problems with porn is precisely that you can't be rejected. And it, it's, it becomes like this, well, hey, zero risk of rejection. And I can, you know, have all these women that are seducing me 
with the very idea that I seduce them. When in reality, you don't seduce them at all. The way she's looking at you is nothing but a lie. But there's that, like you said, like there's a, there's a deeper need going on there. In fact, the analogy could be used of uh, the, the Shawshank Redemption. It was a great movie. And in it, there's this guy that was in prison basically his whole life. And he must be like 85 years old. And he finally gets released from prison. And, and he realized like, I'm going out into the world. Like I can't, I'm not, I'm not ready for that. And so he commits a crime just so he can go back into prison because a prison wasn't just a place where he was. A prisoner is who he was in his idea. And so that's who I am. I don't know my identity outside of those walls. And sometimes when we grow up in a home, perhaps that's overly rigid or, or distant or, or controlling, a lot of times if we fail, we think, well, I am a failure. You know, I am a mess. That's not just what I do. That's who I am. And so by going back to the porn, it's almost like we're recreating this narrative, this script that we've told ourselves that I'm just not enough. And I'm just this broken individual. I'm doomed to fail. And I might as well go back to it because that's who I am. And so God, through his healing and mercy, needs to rewrite a script there, so to speak, in, in a very deep level of just, you know, as a man, this is not who you are, like stamped in your body is that you are created to initiate this gift of life-giving love. You're created to risk. You're created to initiate love and not to be afraid of that instead of hiding behind some app and swiping left and right. I mean, you gotta look a girl in the eyes and with intentionality and clarity and face that fear of rejection. I, I remember one guy didn't ask a girl out for like the first 35 years of his life and eventually went through a real period of healing, conversion, finally had the guts to ask a girl out and she said no yeah and of course <laughs> and he got back in his car and he shut the door and he said yes i did it i did it he saw the victory there even though she negated his offer um he, he, he was so proud of himself but look i finally did it I, I look i'm not dead like did you die no i didn't die like yeah it was hard it's a bummer but hey there's more fish out there in the sea. And so we've just got to get over that fear of rejection and get off our dumb screens and laptops and burying ourselves in this fantasy world so we can find and give the love that God created us for. Yeah. And I've got so many stories with that, but I got to be careful because I got, I, as a general rule, I wait like five years before I tell stories because some of the people might be watching or they might know the people involved, yeah. but, but th that's, that's a hard lesson. I mean, there's the classic wisdom that before you do something right, you do something poorly. Before you win the girl's heart, you're going to face rejection. And, but that's part of the whole process. And I love the fact that you mentioned that this, this fantasy, this illusions that people go into with pornography, because I've seen it now with marriage counseling and things like that, which is the, um, uh, an insight a priest had, and I've seen this play out in some, some marriage counseling settings, is that some people approach intimacy in a relationship where I get mine and she gets hers. And, but it's not this connection. It's not this sharing in each other's life. It's just performing versus loving the other person. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I once heard it said that the opposite of loneliness is not isolation. The opposite of loneliness is conformity where you're just trying to be what you think that they want you to be. You know, whether it's teenagers, okay, I'm just going to act like all my druggy friends so I feel accepted by them. That's profound loneliness. And so some people do that in relationships where she thinks that he wants her, but in reality, you know, 
they say where he's given her love for the sake of getting sex, where she's giving him sex for the sake of feeling love. And it's a mutual use that's going on. It's an exchange of goods and services. And, you know, she might feel wanted, but, and the using goes both ways, but he doesn't really want her, I would say, any more than like a smoker wants a cigarette. Because like smokers don't want cigarettes. Like smokers want the feeling they get from the nicotine in the cigarette. And so when that thing gets smoked down to the blood, they just flick it to the gutter because it's not what they wanted to begin with. And in the same respect, a lot of guys make a girl feel desired, but it's not even her or her body that he desires. It's the pleasure that he can extract from her as a source. And so when he's done and gets what he wanted, she feels like that cigarette just kind of flicked to the curb. And that's one of the beauties of chastity is it brings a man and a woman's intentions up to the surface. I remember one high school boy said to me after my assembly, he said, wow, I was really good. And my girlfriend and I talked and we think we need to stop having sex. But he said, if we can't have sex with each other, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> like, exactly. You know, of how this forces you to authentically love in non-sexual ways. Yeah. And to communicate and to build, build relationships. Um, yeah. I was just listening and said, I got to think of a, a direction to go now. I think that was a lot of great insights. And um, I think you, you mentioned John Paul II and you mentioned his vision of the relationship between men and women in this intimacy could you, could you flesh that out? So we've talked a little bit about how things go badly. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about what's the beauty of this? What's, what's the ideal? Or maybe not even we would call it an ideal, but what is, what is the, the, the goal that we're seeking after in these kinds of relationships? Yeah, and you know, I encourage your viewers, learn the theology of the body. It's, a, it's a basically five years worth of Wednesday audiences that he delivered early in his pontificate, but it's so rich. And it's not so arguing from the outside in. Well, here's the rules from the Vatican, why you got to do them. It's more from the inside out. Like, what is it? What's the experience of the human person? What is it that you really long for? And that the book of Genesis is not some outdated little fairy tale that belongs in some coloring book in a second grade CCD class. Like this tells the story of the human heart. And, and he looks at it like if I were to say to you, like, this, you know, Genesis tells the story of original, everybody would say sin. But John Paul said it's a lot more than sin. It's original unity, original happiness, all, all this stuff that we've, in a sense, forgotten. And one of the key terms that he hits on there is that the peace of the interior gates. And what he means by that is that because of Adam's purity of heart in the beginning, when he saw Eve's naked body, he didn't see it as something to be used for selfish gratification. He saw a body that revealed the goodness of the person and was an invitation to love her in the image and likeness of God. And because of that purity of heart, which isn't the absence of something or the negation of goodness of sex, it's a certain ability to see the goodness of the person in and through the body. Because he possessed that, he was able to give to Eve, what John Paul called the peace of the interior gaze, meaning that when he looked upon her body, she had peace in the way that he looked at her. Now contrast that to the way women feel when a men look at them and in their bodies. I did a podcast on should Christian women wear bikinis? And I interviewed this young woman on it. And she said an interesting point. She said, you'll notice when women are at bikinis or on a swimming pool that they never look men in the eye. And I, I just, it just really hit me like, and we talked about like, why is it? And one of the reasons why is because there's a disjoint between the intimacy of my body and the intimacy of looking into someone in the eyes who's a total stranger. So that vulnerability doesn't match up, but then also not wanting to look a man in the eyes, knowing he's probably not looking you back in the eyes. And so when a woman is being looked at as a thing, 
there's a restlessness, a vulnerability within her that even leads to a bit of resentment and distance that she just doesn't feel safe being looked at at that way as something to be used for gratification. Whereas when the man possesses purity of heart, he can give to his wife all the peace of the interior gaze. And so, but it's, it's real human intimacy. I, I think a lot of times when women hear this and even men, it's like, wow, that, that makes sense that a lot of guys will lust after a woman only when she's looking away. He's waiting till she looks away for him to look at her wrongly because it would be too much to be caught looking at her in a way that's not pure. And so when we start chewing on this stuff, it's like, yeah, this, this is deep. You know, th this is what the human yeah. heart longs for is authentic human love. But because of original sin, we have fallen short, but Christ can give us a redemption of our hearts where we can learn to love rightly. Yeah, you know, and when you're talking, I had no intentions of talking about this, and but a thought occurred to me, something you've identified that I've never talked about before is I have in conversations with women sometimes, I've noticed, especially younger women, and it seems like women who are not comfortable in their bodies, they'll adjust like their bras a lot or they'll look down a lot. And and I've, I've as you know, as a celibate man, I when I was younger and because I've been celibate and chaste now since I was like 23, um, that would really like, like unnerve me. Like, I mean, did I like, did I look down or just, you know, whatever it would, it would make me profoundly uncomfortable, but I've been struck by that as I get older, just when women are not comfortable hearing you speak, when women are not comfortable in their bodies, maybe because they're revealing too much or they're um, you know, does that make sense? Like in contrast, you know, like when I've seen women, like for example, uh, religious sisters, I mean, obviously that's an extreme of modesty, I never see them do that, right? Like I've been around even some of the top women speakers, but but a lot, especially a lot of the women religious, when they're dressed modestly, they don't have that self-consciousness about their body. I, I, don't, I don't know where you could take that. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, when we did this podcast on the Christian women bikini thing, um, I was doing some research and they did these studies on men and women in college campuses where they had them take a test wearing normal attire and then they had them take a test wearing only a bathing suit or bikini or trunks or whatever, and all by themselves in a room. And what they found is that the men who took the test in normal clothes or a bathing suit scored the same score. But the women who took a test wearing a bathing suit got twice as many answers wrong in the test. And they started really researching this and they found this principle of what was called self-objectification that the girl who's wearing yoga pants or you know a sleeveless top or whatever it is, low cut blouse, um, the person most distracted by her outfit in class is not the boy sitting across from her, the person most distracted by an immodest outfit is the girl herself. She has so much more attention focused on what she looks like. Is this too low? Is this too tight? Is this too that? Is he looking at me? They are self-objectifying themselves instead of focusing on things outside of them. And so, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's not simply a problem the way that guys look at girls. And ultimately, the cause of lust isn't the body of the woman. I mean, that needs to be made clear that, yeah. I mean, the cause of robbery is not the presence of jewelry in the window of the store, but the presence of greed in the heart of the robber. And in the same respect, the real root cause of lust isn't an outfit. It isn't a body. Uh, it's the human heart. And obviously, when people dress immodestly, that rises up to the surface much more quickly. But it's for a girl, it's kind of self-defeating in the sense that what she really wants is love. But in a sense, she's inviting a guy to come after her in a sense for what's not the most valuable thing about her, which is her body. And so what modesty is, 
is it opens up a pathway toward love. It's an invitation to contemplation that the, my body's not the best thing about me. And so it's not saying that your body's bad or, oh, it's your fault if you got lusted after. No, it's, it's none of that body shaming stuff. It's not that your body's so bad. It's that you're so good, you can't be reduced to simply a body. Yeah. And I, I don't know if, I mean, I'm a, I'm a parish priest. So when I make citations, I always make the caveat, I could be wrong on this. But I've heard it said that John Paul II once said, or he it was either spontaneously or whatever, that the problem with pornography is not that it reveals too much, but that it reveals too little. This understanding that by revealing the body in this um, illusory way, illusions, it it distorts the identity of the person. And, the, and that's like the, 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 the classic thing with these fantasies is this isn't getting to know a person. This isn't discovering who their parents are. This isn't discovering what do they care about most. What is, this isn't a relationship. This is completely a illusion and objectification and a reducing of the person to their body. Um, could you kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the porn industry exists because it shows so little of the, the woman. I mean, if it actually really showed the fullness of the woman, it would go bankrupt overnight because let's look at that porn film or whatever. Okay, what if we really saw the woman? Not just her body parts, but what about, what if we rewound her life a little bit when she was molested by her uncle when she was 12? What about what happened when she was 16 years old after she had a few too many drinks at that party? What happened to her there? Well, what about what happened before the porn shoot when she was, you know, drinking vodka, kind of numb herself emotionally for what was about to go down on that set? And what about the baby that was actually conceived during that porn film that was aborted six weeks later? Like, what if we just saw it all? I mean, how many guys would be lusting after the girl on their cell phone if they really saw the fullness of the woman? None. Because then she'd appear as what she is, our sister in humanity, who's in need of, of love and redemption and healing, not something to be taken advantage of because she can't see her own value. And so what they can, can't do is show too much of the woman. Oh, no, no, no. We have to just show the body parts, make it look like she is loving this lifestyle and living it, and then go on to the next one. Training these men in this habit of mental polygamy, where they see nothing to value a woman by, except for how aroused they feel by her. And so, yeah, the whole industry exists because you can't show too much of the woman. And so this idea that, oh, well, it's just women's liberation. They can do whatever they want and you know, be proud of their bodies and proud of their sexuality and sex positive, it's all bogus. I mean, I've talked to these women. You know, They're not living happy lives. They're not finding the love that they were created for and they deserve more than porn. Agreed, agreed. And, and that's one of the things, one of the things I wish I could do as a priest sometimes is um, show to the world what I see when I talk one-on-one -on -one with people. Because I do a lot of spiritual direction. I do a lot of that. And, and there is something about it that that's at the heart of entering into relationship is that kind of that vulnerability. In fact, there's that, um, there's that line from uh, Pink, I think it's Pink's song. Um, I showed you the, I showed you the parts that were not so pretty. And I think one of the things that we see in relationships is that ability to be vulnerable and transparent, to open your heart to another person and to receive the same and just, and to be supported and to be listened to. And, and that's a very, that doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen on a date, uh, the first date. That takes years. So, I mean, first of all, I think John Paul II speaks to this. Maybe I'm wrong on that. 
because I'm not, I love theology of the body and it was a big part of my coming back into the faith, but I would not claim to be an expert on it. I think John Paul II speaks to that, but also he might speak to it if you can speak to that, but also from your own experience or what you have to offer, that sense of vulnerability, openness, sharing in a relationship. And what, what, what you, because I know you're also married too, so you can speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think of the word intimacy, and one of the best ways to define it is into me see. And, you know, the, to be loved in the depths of all your brokenness, all your woundedness, the whole mess. I mean, that's real intimacy. And unfortunately, I think a lot of girls that I've encountered have come to a point of brokenness in their life where they're afraid to show that much because, like, what I want the most love is what I fear the most because it requires vulnerability. And when I've been vulnerable in the past, I've gotten burnt. And so I don't want to show too much of who I am. And they actually hide behind their own nakedness. They offer to the men what the men are least likely to reject, namely the physical. And so we'll lead in with a hookup. We'll lead in with showing you some pics and doing this and that. And she figures, well, I know that's what he wants. And so if I just show him enough of that stuff, he's not going to look deeper um, because he's getting what he wants and that'll keep him in the relationship. But she knows that even when she's in his embrace, she's completely alone because he's not looking into her because she's afraid to let him see. And, and so what needs to be undone here is a period of healing of her to be vulnerable in a safe way, probably through counseling. And look, guys have their own share of brokenness too. It's not like, oh, the girls are broken and the guys are taking advantage. We're using each other, you know, back and forth in different ways. And so in order to find the intimacy that we really desire, we have to first be willing to look at ourselves, you know, and as John Paul II said, in order to see Jesus, we first need to let him look at us. And so to go back to those dark places, to those wounds, to be able to look into yourself, to find some healing there, to realize that you are loved, you're not worthless or even worth any less because of what happened to you in the past or because of some decisions that you made. And some girls like, well, even if there is a good guy, you know, why would he want a, gr a girl like me? Because if he ever found out what I did, you know, he'd want to run away from me. Look, if any guy judges you by your past, he's not that good of a guy. You have to hold out for a guy who can see your future instead of someone who's always rubbing your past and rubbing your nose in that. And so that's the intimacy that you desire, but you can't get it as long as you're just hiding behind your body. Agreed. Agreed. And I think part of it, what what's missing from a lot of these relationships is friendship. And I think what's missing from a lot of people's lives is authentic friendship. One of the things that struck me the most the past year. So for, for many people, this has been one of the hardest years and it's been a very difficult year in terms of globally, nationally, but I don't know about you. I, I assume you're probably in a similar boat to me outside of your financial side. Um, Cause you took a big hit financially. Um, what got me through this year was my friends. I mean, it seems so simple and so obvious, but if I hadn't invested in those people before, and if we weren't able to go deep this year, if all we could talk about was sports and all we could talk about was superficial things, we, I, I, this year would have, would have been, I, I don't even imagine going through this year without friends, but yet there's many people who do not invest in friendships. They invest more time in their phone and, and those superficial things, but they don't have authentic relationships. And this carries over into dating because they can't have a real conversation with their friends. So they can't have a real conversation with their boyfriend, their girlfriend, and, and they're not supported. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, I was talking to someone who does ministry to young adults in New York City, and he was talking about how this pandemic has been like a perfect storm when it comes to chastity, because a lot of these young people, they live as singles and really tiny studio, one bedroom apartment kind of things. And there aren't a lot of families around. It's young professionals climbing up the ladder in their different careers. Um, But when there's lockdown, like you're locked down, like you're not going anywhere. You're not connecting with other young adults. You don't have a family to turn to. Maybe if you want to leave New York and go home to your family in Ohio, you can. But other than that, like you are in absolute isolation. And so that's made it really difficult because we're created for human connection. And we've got to be able to have that. we got to find it. And so obviously we've had to pivot a lot in terms of how we create that in times of social isolation. But, you know, like you said, friendship has got to get us through this stuff. And not, not just the dating romantic stuff, but brotherhood, accountability, somebody who knows, you know, when you're struggling that you could reach out to. And then even when it comes to relationships, you know, making sure that you've got that authentic friend in this other person and that it's not just simply sexual attraction and desire, that this person's your best friend that they can actually validate your feelings and listen to you and respect you. Even when you disagree to do so in a way that's respectful and loving, like if you don't got that, but you got a lot of passion, dude, don't even think about marriage, you know, take the passion out and then see really what is left. And oftentimes there isn't a lot. And so that's why chastity a bit can give us clarity and discernment of future relationships to see, do we really have an authentic friendship? You know, when the years go on and the, the looks and the desire might fade a little bit, Am I going to be just as excited to be with this person every morning because they're my best friend and I want to share my life with them? Yeah. And I mean, this is a little crass, but there's some truth in it. Um, There's that, there's that old song. It's like a little bit of a joke. It says, do you want to be happy for the rest of your life? Never make a pretty woman, your wife. I mean, like the joke is, is like have other qualities. Now it goes like food and other things, but there's this like, it's like, don't go after the, the woman you find the most attractive but go after the one. I, mean, I think you want it. And that's, it's very crass, very limited, but there is a sense of what are the long-term qualities you want in a friendship and a relationship? I mean, the, the pop culture has some crude ways of putting these things, but I think there's, there's, there's truth in that. Like, you know, I think, what is it? Is it Psalm Proverbs where it says beauty, uh, beauty, is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. The woman who prays, who fears the Lord is to be praised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and now it's so, I mean, I'm, I'm approaching 40 and I'm thinking back to like, cause I'm work, I work with college students and I'm 40. So I have some life experience and, and I, with giving them advice, dating and talking with them about those things, I can see it now. It's like, I, I've thought about it. I was like, if of all the girls I dated, the, the one quality that I would want in a, a wife or a girlfriend more than anything would be somebody who's intelligent, who could hold a conversation. Because if I had to live my, my whole life with somebody I couldn't talk to. <laughs> ordinarily lonely. Yeah. I mean, some of, some of the loneliest people are married. I mean, a lot of people think it's, oh, it's the singles who can't find the right person out of the loneliest. No, like some people feel imprisoned within their own marriages because like there's no intellectual connection there. Um, the friendship, all, all that stuff is, is lacking. And so, yeah, when it comes to marital discernment, you want to look at that. Like what really matters to you? Clicking on that level, clicking spiritually, is that present there? Um, you know, and discerning like, okay, I, I really want to have a family. Okay, well, objectively, is this woman you're interested in? Does like, does she really want to build a home life? 
does she have those skills? Does she have that desire? Like, I want to be home with kids or like I, I, kids scare me and I just want to dive into my professional life. Like, hey, if, if that's the path you want to take, you know, that's your life. You can choose that. But as a guy, you probably want to know that before jumping into this marriage, hoping she's going to change your mind. Because I mean, I had a friend and he really just wanted to have a big family and and he met this girl and, you know, they fell in love and they got married and she was kind of scared of having kids. Like, oh, well, you know, she'll change. And like, she never did. Um, they ended up having one child and that's it. And she refuses to have any more. And it's been a tremendous cross on him because he always wanted to have all these sons and daughters running around and grandkids. And it's like, nope, sorry, one more than that is more than she wants. And, and so like, you really gotta, I mean, it's hard to be this objective when you're in love, but to, to really step back, what does your mom think? What do your dad think? What do your good friends think? What does your pastor think? Have the humility to listen to other people's perspectives. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, and that's, it's a fascinating dynamic. I think the, um, and I think this is where we were talking about before with virtue, which is, I mean, this is kind of more of a little bit of a classical way of putting it. And I have, I have a feeling you probably have a good way to connect that with a modern audience is what I've come to appreciate in this last year is when we're basing things off of fear and our base instincts, like this person's really good looking. I'm afraid of being alone. These are all things that are very surface. And in a certain sense, are connect, like there's that whole Maslow's hierarchy, right? These are security, attraction. We share these things with animals, right? But the higher things that make us human are our reason, our, our ability to co have conversation. And then there's our spiritual life, our faith life, our relationship with God. Um, and I've often been struck by sometimes how in relationships, people don't attend to those higher things because they have those lower things that they're focused on. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, and you're not arguing that, oh, it's, it's just the intellectual. Like I have discerned that I should pursue you and you'd meet my categories. And so <laughs> like, oh, Catholic stalker, run. Um, no, I mean, the feelings are part of love. You know, they're the beginning of love. They're kind of the raw material that gets the kindling, so to speak, that starts the fire. But you need some thicker logs. You can't just throw a bunch of hay on there and think that that's going to warm you for any extended period of time. And so like, yeah, th that's part of love. And that's great to have that desire. But then John Paul talks about the next step is, is union. Like you crave union. And some people are like, okay, well, we got that. But then the third and kind of crowning element of love is love is goodwill. Um, that I'm willing to do what is best for the other, even if it's a sacrifice for me. Because if you have desire and this union, but you don't have goodwill, call it whatever you want. It's not authentic human love. And so it's not so much, well, I just have, you know, you know, an altruistic love for this person, um, but I don't have the other elements. Well, the other elements should be there, but there needs to be a hierarchy of values if this is going to be a healthy relationship. Yeah. And I really like, you really struck a memory. This is funny. I'm talking about all kinds of things that I've, I haven't, I haven't talked about. Um, so you mentioned this analogy of fire. And I remember I had this insight. Actually, I was a high schooler. I was dating a girl that I, fell very hard for. And I wrote her this poem about my love for her kind of thing, you know, the teenage romance. But the image I used was this idea that the flame, the, 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 the roaring born bonfire had settled to nice coals. And if you know anything about fires, if you're trying to cook, it's not the flame that cooks, it's the coals that cook, right? So it's, it's, it's having the wood, the fuel. And you mentioned like hay, and I've seen that, you need that a little bit of, you need hay to s start the fire, 
but you need more substance, you know, things like that. Yeah, no, I was actually took my kids out in the woods just last weekend. And my son was trying to take some fire out of the fireplace and light something else on fire. He's a bit of a pyro. Uh, and so he kept taking little branches off and trying to light something else on fire again. And he just couldn't do it. I told him, Cole, I was like, just get the coals, get the coals out of there, bring yeah. them over there. And then, you know, put a little hand on top and just blow on the thing. And sure enough, he did it and it burst into flame. But like all, all the little flickering flames, they're bright, nice and beautiful to look at. But that's not the hottest part. Absolutely. And continue with that. Um, a friend of mine had a great insight about his marriage that um, I'd be wondering if you, this is your experience. Now let's talk maybe a little bit to an older crowd. Um, he said he didn't felt like he really knew his wife really well for at least 10 years, that it took time of just being with her. And, and uh, Aristotle talks about with friendship, I believe Aquinas covers this as well. He says that friendship, you have to live with the person and kind of experience them day in and day out. And I think most people don't seem to understand that sense of trying to deepen your, your, your love for somebody, getting to know them, walking with them, that, that there's, there's stages to your marriage. There's, it's a journey. It's not, even if, you, even if year one is great, it's a continual growth process. So I was wondering if you could address that a little bit. No, it reminds me of something John Paul II said in Love and Responsibility. He just, he talks about, you know, when the sensual and emotional reactions fade, um, life will bring to the surface the, the real value of the love that you have chosen. Because when those other sensual things fade a little bit, the true value of the choice that you have made will come to light. And he said, if it was more than a synchronization of sensual and emotional experiences, the couple will find themselves in a vacuum, so to speak, and the relationship itself will lose its very reason for existence. But he said, if on the other hand, you know, they've made a choice based upon who this person truly is, then not only the relationship will survive, it will sink deeper roots, you know, and it'll be able to thrive and grow. And so life will be the test of love, you know, because you think, oh, we know each other better than anyone else in the world. It's like, do you even know yourself at this point in your life? And a lot of times we jump in a little bit too fast, but, you know, with marriage, one of the functions, because the purpose of marriage isn't happiness. You know, if you get married thinking this is going to make me happy, hey, you're in for a big surprise. The function of marriage is, is holiness. And in order to be holy, um, it'll bring certain faults to the surface. And with holiness does come authentic joy, but it's a painful purification where your faults are going to start bubbling up to the surface like oil and water, not just your faults, but your spouse's faults as well. And, you know, I've heard different priests say that sometimes God will choose the spouse for you that will bring your faults most clearly to the surface so that those things can get extracted. And it's a painful process, you know, and when our faults come to the surface, the temptation is to blame shift, right? Like, like, let's say a young couple gets married, they start using natural family planning. And let's say the guy doesn't like it. He's like, wait a minute, I didn't really sign up for this. That's really a lot more demanding. I didn't think it'd be like this in marriage. You know, you're the problem. Your church's rules are the problem. And that NFP thing is the problem. What's going on is no, the, the problem is he has an, in, an, an incomplete development of that virtue of chastity before marriage. And now that self-mastery is being asked of him within the sacrament, oh, it's altogether too much. So the girl's the problem. The church is the problem. It's like, no, the problem's really in here. Something needs to get healed. Marriage is just bringing it up to the surface. And sometimes it's lust. Sometimes it's your impatience, your pride, whatever. But I mean, you're not going to be compatible. I mean, that's, that's clear as day. Because I mean, the word compatible comes from the Latin compati, which means to suffer with. And so lasting marriages aren't because you're like, it's so good. It's because you're just willing to show up and fight for your marriage when things get tough. 
Agreed. Agreed. And I would say one of the things I do in spiritual direction and, and, and confession, um, when I'm talking with somebody, they're like, you know, I get mad at my spouse. I get mad at my children. I say, I want you to imagine that they're going to do those three things again in the next week. And what I would give people as a spiritual exercise in this regard is plan on having a crisis in your marriage, plan on having hard times, like prepare for it mentally. Like what would you do in hard times? I mean, what are the, what are the values that, that you want? So you imagine with a, a couple or with a family, if, if you knew, like, so for example, if you could have picked somebody um, in a situation to be in this year with, like somebody who could walk with you, what would be the qualities you would want to walk you through this most difficult of years, right? I think those are kind of the things, the thought experiments I give people. Because I think sometimes we, we, we focus on the good, which is true. And I've seen this sometimes with people where they say, I emit positivity. I have to focus on positivity. I'm like, well, that's the, the, we do need to be positive, but we also need to recognize the dark side of life and be prepared for trials and tribulations and, and have that kind of resiliency in the face of trials. So I, I don't know where I was going with that, but I'll let you riff on it a little bit. Yeah, no, it reminds me, I'd encourage your viewers to um, Google The Secret to a Happy Marriage by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien wrote a letter, um, I, I don't know if it was to his son or who he was writing to on what the secret is to a happy marriage. And he basically says that all marriages at the end of the day are pretty much a mistake. And what he says, by, what he means by that is he's basically said, look, only a very, very wise person at the end of their life could look back and say that of all potential mates that were on this planet, I chose the one that could make me the happiest. He says, more often than not, it's like, well, no, that isn't the one you end up picking, but your soulmate isn't the next sexually attractive person that happens to walk by when your marriage gets tough. Your, your soulmate is the one that God has called you into the sacrament with, and it, it's going to be difficult. But, you know, he just says, look, you know, men aren't monogamous. He's like, if not even by our nature, there's no use pretending it. And so he almost, he calls it out in the sense of like, yeah, you're going to have these cravings due to original sin and things like that. But it's like, who's in control? You know, is, am I in control of my body or is my body in control of me? And so when the tough times come, you don't want to just immediately assume, oh, you know, wrong spouse, I'm out of here. And, you know, sometimes junk can happen within marriage that reveals that you might not be in a valid sacramental marriage to begin with. I mean, sometimes those situations, you know, really happen annulment yeah. and all that. Um, but in other cases, it's just human life together, shared life that becomes difficult. And some people have it easy. I remember me like, you know what? We've been married for 70 years and we've never fought once in 70 years. I'm like, wow, you know, and then other couples where it's just quite the opposite, but they're still able to persevere. And so, yeah, a couple thoughts there. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's... All right, cool. Well, we're, we're about at 46 minutes. Let me check. I wish I could, normally I would have like a co-host that we could check uh, comments. Um, and for folks who are watching at this point, they probably picked up on the fact that we're not responding to comments. Um, I think we've covered a lot. Why don't we actually, why don't we switch gears a little bit? What advice do you have for parents with their children? Like, what, what do you think parents can do with their children? Just to build chastity, but also build virtue. I think what I would say, the, my theory on chastity especially for men, but even for women, it's like the gateway virtue. Once you've learned chastity in a certain sense, it becomes the pattern by which you learn other things and you learn other virtues. So I do think there is something about building chastity that helps strengthen the other virtues. But if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, well, one thing is we got to get over as parents our insecurities when it comes to talking about this stuff, because a lot of parents didn't have parents themselves who ever talked to them about this stuff. And so they don't even know where to begin. Is my kid going to even listen to me? But we've got to do it. We got to start early and often, um, not necessarily the birds and the bees too soon, because, you know, every kid's different, right? I mean, you might have a 13 year old who just couldn't care less where babies come from. And then you got like the nine year old who's like, you know, you know, mom, where did the baby come from? Oh, you know, God put the baby in my, he's like, look, I know God put the baby in your belly, but how did God put the baby in the belly? Like some kids really precocious, want all the details. That's why the church never gives you like really an age because the parents are the primary sex educators and every kid is unique. But I think you want to start early, even with like internet safety stuff, telling kids that, you know, if they're ever playing on iPad or mom's phone or whatever, like, hey, you know, there's some good pictures on the internet. There's some bad pictures out there too. And like some people, I don't know what they're thinking, but show pictures of themselves that, you know, show parts of the body that should be covered by a bathing suit. And if you ever see one of those pictures, here's what you got to do. You got to close the computer right away and look away and then come to mom or come to dad and we'll talk to you about that. And we're really sorry that if you ever saw that stuff, it's not. so that way it's kind of a preemptive strike. You know, we're not giving a full-blown sex ed pornography talk. It's just saying, hey, look, there's stuff out there. And if you get exposed to stuff, you're, you're not the problem. That's the problem. But you come to us and you can trust us. So you're starting to build these conversations. Then eventually getting stuff like covenant eyes installed on the devices that can block the porn. So, and you get an accountability report every single day of the websites they're looking at. This to me is non-negotiable stuff. And just having the courage to talk to your kids. And it could be a little bit awkward. I mean, I got a buddy told his son how babies are made. The kid is grossed out. And he's like, dad, oh, he's like, how long have people been doing this? <laughs> dad, but is there any other way? And the dad's like, no, that's pretty much it. And then the nine-year-old daughter came up to him and was like, daddy, I want to be like the blessed Virgin Mary. And dad's like, oh, that's great. She said, yes, dad, I want to get pregnant before I'm married. And dad's like, no, and like, that's not the game plan. That's not the lesson. I need you know, and so could be a little bit awkward, but that's okay. We got to speak up and not wait for them to come to us with questions. Yeah. And that, and that does su- suggest a certain honesty with your children and, uh, and um, good communication as well. Um, okay. Um, so I think we've covered a lot. I, we, we were planning on an hour, but I think we're at a good point. Um, thanks so much, Jason. I definitely, we definitely got to do this again, maybe in person as well. Have you come talk to the college students or something, but love, love, always loved listening to you talk and uh, always appreciate what you do. Uh, why don't we close with a prayer? Thanks for your time. Okay. Absolutely. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless all who will watch or listen to this, help them to grow in the virtues and to know your love. And we ask you to bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, thanks, Jason. I'm going to turn it off here. Give me a second.